us in worship today. That was a, a fun distinction from last week. Uh, we had everyone on stage, and now we had no one on stage. Kind of fun. If you all could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 43, we're going to open up in our text for the day. <clears throat> and um, we are going to, to read this 43rd Psalm, and uh, uh, today we, uh, we actually we come to a psalm that um, is, a, is a part of one that, we, that I actually preached uh, last, uh, a, several weeks ago or months ago. And um, so unfortunately, I, I wish that I could read Psalm 42 as well. So here's what my request is for you. As we walk through God's Word today, I would ask you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, uh, that we could walk through it faithfully and that the Lord could be glorified in our uh, reading and proclaiming of His Word. So if you could follow along as I read aloud God's revealed Word in Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now for those of you who have been here, and for those of you who were here several weeks ago, that psalm may sound a bit familiar. And that's because the last time I preached, I was blessed with the opportunity to walk us through the 42nd psalm, the psalm just prior to Psalm 43. And this was a few months, months ago, so I'm sure everyone remembers it with absolute perfect clarity, right? Like it was yesterday. Uh, but today, we're going to continue our time of worship by turning back uh, to the Psalms. We'll, we'll step out of Revelation for a week. And um, I, I just want to give us a little bit of background for going into Psalm 43 well. First, I want you to notice the fact that this Psalm has no title. There's no real introduction. Uh, it, it simply begins, vindicate me, O God. And, and this alone may not be a particularly unique situation with this psalm, but it actually should raise some eyebrows when you start to see the similarities that go with it, where there are actually several verses and several sentences that take place that are an exact quote, actually, from Psalm 42. And so here's, here's what we can know for sure. It's been the perspective of nearly all church history prior to Augustine and, uh, and, and beyond that ultimately this psalm is written not as the same psalm as for Psalm 42, but of the same circumstances and by the same author. 
This means that the psalm was written either by David, according to Psalm 42, and and dedicated to the sons of Korah, his main worship pastors, his worship leaders, or it was written by the sons of Korah themselves, kind of in regard to what, what David had experienced in his life. And so this is important for, for, for this reason. Whoever put pen to papyrus, we know that these were a people who were very mature. This was a very mature person who penned this psalm. And understanding that those who were godly and mature and in love with the Lord are able to write psalms like Psalm 42 and 43, it can give us a helpful understanding in how to ensure we're walking through them faithfully. These were not penned by someone who lives in the slums of depression all their life, but nonetheless, we find the psalmist here singing in these two psalms, they're not singing the song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Excellent song. But that's not the tone that we take here. This is not one of overwhelming happiness and delight. Rather, we find him in a deep state of lasting sorrow, downcastness, what the psychologies of our age would try to describe as depression. We've heard in in Psalm 42 weeks ago, just kind of a a background, that there, there were six responses to this deeply depressive state. These harsh circumstances through which the psalmist was enduring. And now as we turn our eyes to Psalm 43, we're approaching a different psalm completely, but nonetheless, we we need to see that there were two. And that they go together. That this depressive state, these harsh circumstances have continued to the point where another verse is needing to be added. And so... As we, uh, as we turn our eyes to what the Holy Spirit has written through this psalmist, we're going to see specifically today how one is to respond when their heart is dis- divided because they feel abandoned by God. They've sung the 42nd Psalm and things are still dark. Through this faithful, mature, and wise psalmist, we will learn How one is to cry out to the Lord that they might have their joy and satisfaction be found in Him alone. We'll see how to unite our divided hearts and lift up downcast souls in hope to God. And we're going to see this in in, in four distinct ways. So I have four points. I'm breaking out of the Trinitarian kind of threesome track here. We have four points. And we're going to see even a few sub-points as well. We're going to first look at the psalmist's petition. His cry to God. Then we're going to see the, seconds, the second, the psalmist's prayer. Thirdly, we'll hear of the psalmist's joy. And finally, we'll listen to the psalmist's preaching. And in the midst of this psalm, we can pay careful attention to five ways that he will seek to unite his divided heart in a time of great, great sorrow. So let's look, first of all, to the psalmist's petition. Verses 1 and 2. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. 
For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So the psalmist starts his song by running to God in a petition. He begins with an outcry outcry to God for vindication. And another translation, in case that seems like too big of a word, it's simply judge me. Look into my situation and give me your opinion here, God. He finds himself in a time where he is being mistreated. According to Psalm 42, verse 3, his foes are verbally abusing him in some way. They're they're mocking him because it seems as though God has abandoned him. They say, where is your God? And it seems like the same voices are still crying out. His circumstances are so terrible that he's not even able to gather with the people of God for corporate worship. We see that he's kept from God's house. So he cries out to God for a judgment. Now, he's not here to say that he believes that he stands somehow perfectly righteous before the Lord God in his own goodness and merit, that should the Lord look at him, he'll be somehow impressed. We can tell that that's not his perspective on the basis of what he's crying out for defense in. We see that the psalmist cries out because he's being wrongfully treated due to no true fault of his own. He cries, defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. You see, the psalmist does not think of himself to somehow be perfect. But rather, he sees and knows himself kind of like Job in Job 31, 24 through 40. He knows he's not perfect, but he knows that he has not brought about these circumstances by his own sin. I'm not perfect, but I didn't do that. Vindicate me, O God. Judge me. Now, we don't know exactly who these evildoers are, but we know what they're marked by. Ungodliness, deceit, injustice. So one thing that we can see clearly from the psalmist is that he's under no presumption that he's going to be kept from some kind of difficult life. This song is written, in fact, it's in the Psalms, assuming that the godly will indeed suffer in this life. David had his foes. Christ had his murderers. And let us not forget that it was their own people that first rejected them. The psalmist most likely is not talking to those people who are out there in the world who have no knowledge of the Lord, some Babylonian raid. Church history tells us it's most likely referring to the people of God here, the Israelite nation. The psalmist is likely talking about his own people. These These people are known as deceivers, evildoers. They claim to know the Lord who use his name on their banners, but they rally up wickedness and anger and stir up violence and run after their own self-glorifying pursuits. The most beloved of earthly relationships often provide the most intimate and destructive stripes. And so as we, as we 
go to this text, we need to keep in mind that we, we can't set this aside as a good thing to do in some situations. But God doesn't know mine. No, most likely you just don't fully understand David's or the sons of Korah. You see, this is a world filled with terrors, and and Scripture does not shy away from such a reality. We see here how a godly man responds to such wrongs in the world. And we see that he begins by crying out to the Lord here. He does not merely respond with a fake-it-until-you-make-it attitude. It's all going to be happy and clappy because all things are for good. Rather, he actually cries out, God, judge me. Vindicate me. This can be a good prayer. This can be a biblical prayer. Christ himself prayed in the garden that the cup of wrath might be passed. It's not ungodly to pray for relief when darkness will not lift. It's not ungodly to pray for relief when when the hardships of the earth seem to crush in unceasingly. To pray for relief like, God, heal this cancer. Lord, remove this corruption from social media. God, bring justice upon those who are seeking to hurt my loved ones. God, please get this terrible public figure out of the news with your name on their lips. Yahweh, reveal the wickedness behind this slanderous accusation that you might clear my name. And all might know that though I'm a sinner, I didn't do that. These can be indeed good, godly Fine prayers to pray. But you see, there is something unique about this psalm. He doesn't simply pray for vindication because it doesn't take a love for the Lord to cry out for vindication against injustice. So why is it that he cries out for vindication? Why should he be able to expect deliverance from the Lord? Well, he goes on in verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. The psalmist knows who his God is. We actually saw this intimately in Psalm 42. He's got a great theology. The psalmist knows Psalm 1830. This God, his way is perfect. The the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So he's looking around and about at his life and praying, All right, God, I do take refuge in you. Your word promises that you won't abandon your beloved. So when is it that you will act on my behalf here? He knows his God. He just wrote in Psalm 42 of the steadfast love of God. But he is still feeling something quite different. His experience doesn't seem to line up with what he knows to be true. His his experience is confusing because he knows the Lord. And he knows his steadfastness. 
His heart is divided here. He knows what is true, but he doesn't quite know it. He believes, but he needs help with his unbelief. This leads him to some very honest questioning. Look again in verse 2. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He repeats actually an exact question from Psalm 42 verse 9. Now the psalmist knows, let's be very clear, when he says, why have you rejected me? He knows this, this is nonsense. The psalmist is not trying to make some theological statement here that differs from everything we've seen in scriptures so far. He's not trying to say, yes, God is faithful except for in this situation. He's abandoned me. He's not making a theological statement here that God rejects those who take refuge in him. For that's the very reason he's making this petition in the first place. Is that he trusts that God vindicates those who in him take refuge. Here he, we witness a great and faithful man shudder under the very temptations that we ourselves experience. Have you ever had such an experience? Where you know who God is? You may know what the Bible says, but you look God right in the face and say, yeah, but that doesn't feel right right now. Yes, but that doesn't feel true. I know what you say. I know what the Bible says. I know what that pastor is going to say. Sure, I know what the right answer is, but I'm looking around and I'll tell you what, God, I want some answers. If you possibly could relate to such an impulse, then let me lovingly say to you that you find yourself in good company. And there is a way back to hoping in God. Because you're just as wrong as our psalmist. And he shows us the way to hope. The psalmist feels himself to be forsaken by God. Cast off, stiff-armed. Yet, in this darkness, in this low, in this deep circumstantial and emotional depression, he shows us the steps to take when you feel abandoned by God. And yet you know it to be not true. First, number one, he petitions before God for relief. Vindication. Then he confesses honestly of his feelings of rejection. Look now, though, to the psalmist's prayer. In verse 3, send out your light. And your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Our forebrother knows that he's in a bad spot. His heart is divided and he knows what is true of God. He has dwelt in inescapable joy, according to Psalm 42, as he led droves of worshipers to ascend the mountain of God for corporate worship of the Lord. He's tasted of the goodness and joy in the Lord. He knows the God who says, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. 
So he calls out for light. So he responds to his divided heart firstly by pleading for God's light. The first response to a divided heart is to cry out for God to give light. He wants to see. He's asking that the Lord would pull back the darkness. Let me see what's really going on here. Let me see as you see. For for you, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. He also calls for truth. Light and truth. Why is that? Well, because light reveals the truth. Light shows what is actually going on. For example, when I was in high school, I worked at a golf course. If you know me, you know how ironic that is. But I worked at a golf course, and twice a year, we would have a late night event from midnight until 2 a.m., where we would allow a bunch of people to come out onto the greens and play 18 holes of glow-in-the-dark golf. We would bring in -in glow-in-the-dark balls. Every year, we would set up the lighted path covered in -in glow-in-the-dark lanterns. We'd wrap the carts in all those glow-in-the-dark string things that small children use to play in the dark. We would light it up with this glow-in-the-dark theme. And now, believe it or not, not all of these humans would make the wisest choices in life at this event. And inevitably, every year, we would end up pulling at least two or three golf carts out of what? The water. That would have been fun. No. The sand trap, though I'm surprised. It's just we didn't have water in Iowa. Out of the sand trap. Why? Why would we pull golf carts out of a sand trap? Because someone had ventured off of the lighted path. And when you're in the dark, you do not see the truth. You see what your mind chooses to believe is true. A sand trap will appear to be just another gentle grassy divot in the rolling landscape when you leave the lighted path. In the same way, This psalmist needs to see his life, his circumstances, and this world that is all darkened and shrouded about him through the lens of God's word. He's saying, I'm not seeing clearly here. Send your light. Send your truth. I need to see rightly. So he cries for help to do so. The psalmist knows his need. And he cries out with the psalmist who writes in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He says, I am in the dark, God. I am far from you. I don't see what's going on. And it feels like you've rejected me. It feels like you've left me. It feels like you don't care for me. Oh God, I can't see the path. He needs God's light, and he needs God's truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. You see, it's interesting. He doesn't just want to see for his eyes to know the truth. 
Oftentimes, I think when we ask the question, why, we would be quite content simply knowing the reason for something going on in our lives. But you see, the psalmist is a bit different. He wishes for the light that it might lead his feet. He understands he doesn't simply need to see, he needs to move. Where? Not back home to his comfy bed, not back to his country where he can be with like-minded people, not back to earthly pleasures and treasures. Where does he long to return to? By God's grace, even this man with a divided heart, he wants to go back first to his God's dwelling. Remember from Psalm 42, 9, he pants as a deer for God, not relief. He asks for relief, but it's that he could get to God. He wants to worship the Lord with God's people. Praise the Lord for men like this whose heart longs most for the very presence of God when he's downcast. And he thirsts for God as a deer pants for water. And yet, that very same heart is able to say, Oh God, I feel like you've cast me out. Praise God we have honest sinners in the Bible. For if a man so mature as this can battle deep depression and wage wars against the lies in his soul, perhaps this gives hope to sinners like me. Now, as the psalmist calls for God's light, what we will find is that he also calls for God to help him see his own sinfulness, his own need for God's forgiveness. In, in, in 1493, Christopher Columbus sent an admiral from North America to Haiti, and on his journey, he made an amazing discovery. Ready? In the fading light, light of the dusk, he saw three mermaids rise up out of the water and watch him sail by. Now, admittedly, in Columbus's journal, he mentioned that they had, you know, a few more masculine features than he expected, than he had kind of anticipated. Well, this is because researchers working along with the Smithsonian have since concluded that what he saw was not, in fact, mermaids, but manatees. Another term for them is sea cow. The point here is that there is a darkness in this world that makes the ugliest creatures look really beautiful. You ever seen a manatee? And that guy thought those were beautiful women. Oh God, send your light. Oh God, send your truth. And as God sends his light and truth, they won't just show this psalmist how to see the world around him, it will help him to see the ugly beasts that he is drawn near to in the dark. It will shine light on his sin. He prays what Paul will pray for the Ephesians. He wants to have the eyes of his heart enlightened, that he may know what is the hope to which he has called him. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance 
in the saints. He says, show me my sin. Show me your forgiveness of it, O God. For he knows what will be required for him to draw near to the Lord out of the dark. In this prayer for enlightening, he will not be like those that we read of in John 3, 19-21. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. As the psalmist calls for light, he calls for God to help him see his need for God's forgiveness. He wants to see his sin as sin. He wants to see the mermaid as a manatee. He draws near to the light that he might be exposed We see this in the second step of warring against a divided heart. That he therefore is able to set his heart on God's definition of salvation. Not only does he long for deliverance from circumstances. He asks for that. That's okay. That's fine. That can be good. But earthly deliverance is never ultimate. We read next of where being led to the presence of God must first bring him. Verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God my God. The altar. Where is it that he will go to first? Where is it that he will go to first? To the altar. What was the altar again? Think back to Leviticus. That book in the Bible, that book of blood. The altar is that table that drips with God's mercy and wrath. It is the bright red stained table that buries the iniquity of God's people under a fountain of blood. What was the altar? It was the place where priests would make sacrifices for the sins of God's people. It was the place that meant safety for the one on whom God had mercy. And it meant death to the spotless lamb on his behalf. In his thirst for vindication, he is far more parched for mercy. So he is led to the place of God's atonement, to the altar. He is seeing even when he can't see. Do you see that? It may still be dark, but he sees in the paling hue of the darkness breaking over the horizon. He is able to see enough that he does not long only for deliverance. Does he long for deliverance? Yes. Does he long to feel better? Yes, does he cry for vindication? Certainly. And yet, here we see the psalmist's true perspective on victory, on rescue and deliverance. It is found in being forgiven and in the presence of God. He sets his heart on God's salvation. He sets his heart to God's definition of what vindication will look like. This is found 
this ultimate vindication, this, this forgiveness in the presence of God, as we are on this side of the cross, we know that this is found only in the blood of Christ, through whom God would unite all things to himself, according to Colossians 1.20. This is Jesus Christ, the Lamb, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because He in His divine forbearance had passed over former sins. This psalmist is one of those whose sin was passed over. Not because the blood of bulls and sheep, but because there was a coming altar. Not made by human hands. Found in the very presence of God. This altar is Christ Jesus Himself. And the truth of God leads us here as it led our brother to the mercy seat of God through the cross of the Lamb slain for us. Here in the Psalms, we see. The mystery of the gospel before it's even yet fully revealed. The shadow of the fulfillment to come. The psalmist is in need of the very same atonement for sin as we are in order to draw near to the Lord God. And what's on the other side of that bloody table? What, is, what follows that bloody flood? He says it. To God, my exceeding joy. Not simply joy, exceeding joy. This third move to unite his divided heart is to find his joy in God alone. Not not simply what he finds enjoyable, but it's literally translated joy of my joys, or the delight, the core, the soul of my joy, the substance that makes up any and all joy that I have, like the taste buds on your tongue that let honey be sweet. He is that which is at the center of all and every joy I could possibly experience. God himself is the source of ineffable joy to all those who love in him. Who love him. For in his existence, personality, attributes, providence, word, and salvation, God is the source of unspeakable joy. The psalmist knows the truth found in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The gift given, always when rightly understood, leads to a swelling love toward the giver, not the gift itself. And it is this very same treasuring of the Lord as chief of every and all goods that allows Paul in the future to tell the Philippians, I am hard pressed between dying and living. My desire is to depart or die, to be with Christ, for that is far better. To the psalmist, all joys without God himself at the center and substance of his delight. 
They're like empty rain clouds, which promise a great storm and dissipate without a crack of thunder. Is this the cry of my heart? Is it the cry of yours? I I really love John Piper's commentary here on this text. He says, here is a man threatened by enemies and feeling danger from his adversaries. And yet, he knows that the ultimate battle of his life is not the defeat of his enemies. It is not escaping natural catastrophe. It's not being healed from cancer. The ultimate battle is, will God be his exceeding joy? Will God be the gladness at the heart of all his joy? Our our third step to unite a divided heart is to set your joy in God and in God alone. Fourthly, our psalmist turns to battle his sorrow with praise. He turns his heart to hope of praising God. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And just for the children in the room, that's not liar as in someone who tells lies. It's an instrument. Lest you think, well, that sounds like an interesting gathering. I'll praise you with the liar. It's an instrument that David has been known for being absolutely wonderful at. The instrument, in fact, that could calm the, the uproaring soul of Saul. The king who would throw spears at him. David wants to worship his Lord God. And he wants to do it to the best of his ability. In the most beautiful way he knows how. But now, our psalmist battles his sorrow with this praise. What is it that the gospel of grace leads to? Love. What is it that the altar led to? Joy. Love. And what flows from love? Worship. Oh, we worship what we love, do we not? The psalmist battles his divided heart by turning his heart to praise the Lord. Even in the dark, no circumstances have shifted. He's already sung the 42nd psalm and it didn't get him out of it. And now, still, here he is. He praises the Lord. A song lyric by Casting Crowns rises to my mind that I believe reflects well this thought. I'll praise you in this storm. I will lift my hands. For you are who you are. No matter where I am. And every tear I've cried You hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. The psalmist's final goal in life is experiencing the Lord God himself as his exceeding joy. Even in the storm, The more terrible the storm, the more necessary is the anchor. 
Therefore, he turns now from speaking to God, and he begins his fifth response to his divided heart. The fifth and final response to a divided heart is preaching to himself. The psalmist preaches again that that which has become old hat by now. The truths that he knows to be true even though he doesn't feel them. The truths that while he's preaching them, he, he may even doubt their truth on the basis that he has to keep preaching them. But our psalmist has not lost hope. He's divided. And so he's fighting back. He will set his hope. So he preaches to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. The psalmist upbraids. He rebukes himself. To point himself back to the hope and gratitude of one who has received an unshakable kingdom from the everlasting God. Our dear brother in the faith lives out the command in Hebrews eleven twenty eight through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He cauterizes the wound of his soul with the hope of God who is a consuming fire. That his soul might be steady before the God of glory. He calls his soul to account for its division and he will not overlook such an offense. With God as his exceeding joy, he commands his heart again to obey the truth and put his hope where it belongs. Hope in God. Not for what he can do to make my circumstances better. Not because he is, no, pardon, he is his salvation. And is God. And he will again praise him. Because God is his exceeding joy. Can we do anything to improve on our psalmist's song? Do we need to add something to this? That creates, like that unique situation that's your situation that's different than his. Because he doesn't really, you know, understand your situation. Does, does he do more than the Lord would call us to do? Are we to accept less from ourselves when we are downcast? Are we to be contented with a divided heart? To all of these questions, let us give a resounding no. Let us instead sing the songs of Psalm 42 and 43 the way they were intended. As Theodoret of Seir said of these two psalms, those using them encourage themselves to have a stronger hope 
They overcome the feeling of discouragement. And they await the salvation from God that will doubtless be given to them. Therefore, let us in times of trial and darkness run to God through the gospel that He might be our exceeding joy. Let us seek to unite our divided hearts even amidst the dark sorrows of feeling abandoned by God. In times of darkness, plead for God's light and truth that you might see, that you might be exposed. In times of trial, set your heart on God's salvation, on true vindication that is to come. In times of sorrow, find your joy in God alone. Through a right understanding of the kingdom unshakable that has been given to us, we find love of the Lord God. In times of storm, turn your heart to praise Him. In times of depression, preach the truth to yourself. And don't stop. Would the word of our God help us to unite divided hearts, lift up our downcast souls to hope in God as we rejoice in Him and the salvation that is guaranteed through Christ, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul soul. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of Psalm 43 that you have sent. Lord, we thank you for the truth sent in Christ Jesus who perfectly depicts the life to be followed after. The perfect example of what it means to live to your glory. And yet, Lord, he exposes our own sin as well. And Lord, as the altar once so showed your wrath and mercy on perfect display, we watch as the cross of Christ becomes the true image, the substance from that shadow. Lord, would we in times of darkness cry out to you for your truth and your light to shine in? Lord, would you help us to set our hearts on your salvation, the salvation and vindication that you seek? Lord, would you help us to find our joy in you and you alone, not loving the gift, but the giver of them all? 
Lord, would you turn our hearts amidst the sorrows to praise you? Even when our hearts are still divided. And Lord, would you keep us in preaching the truth from your word to our souls. And in so, Lord, would you stitch our divided hearts. Unite our souls. Cauterize our wounds. To love you and you alone. Lord, might you unite us in love and fear of you. That we might live for your glory and delight in your ways all of our days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.